Now, just about every American knows the name Francis Scott Key, but very few know anything more about him other than the fact that he wrote our national anthem. But there was much, much more to Francis Scott Key. One of the most famous, admired, and accomplished men in the early American Republic, Key was a patriotic, pious, hardworking, and well-connected Washington, D.C. lawyer. He had a thriving legal practice, argued more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court, and served as U.S. attorney in Washington for eight years. A confidant of President Andrew Jackson, Key was a member of Old Hickory's legendary kitchen cabinet and handled many sensitive legal matters for the administration. Our speaker's new biography, What So Proudly We Hail, describes in detail how Key found himself in Baltimore Harbor on the night of September 13, 1814. It goes on to recount the other important events of Key's life, including his role as a founding member and one of the leaders of the American Colonization Society. Journalist and historian Mark Liebson is the author of eight books and numerous articles. After graduating from George Washington University in 1967, he was drafted into the Army and served for two years, including a year in the Vietnam War. After his military service, he earned an MA in history from George Washington in 1971. A former staff writer for Congressional Quarterly, he has been a full-time freelance writer since 1986. He's written for many publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Civil War Times, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Dictionary of Virginia Biography. He is senior writer, arts editor, and columnist for The Veteran, the magazine published by Vietnam Veterans of America. Mark has been a guest on many television and radio news programs, including All Things Considered, Fox News, MSNBC, The History Channel, the BBC NewsHour, RTV1 Russian Television, and Irish Radio, and that might be about the most diverse list of credits I have ever heard. He taught history uh, at Lord Fairfax Community College in Warrington for several years, and his books include Saving Monticello, The Levy Family's Epic Quest to Rescue the House that Jefferson Built, Desperate Engagement, How a Little-Known little Civil War Battle Saved Washington, D.C., and Changed American History, and Lafayette, Lessons in Leadership from the Idealist General, and of course, the book we will speak about today. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Mark Leibson. Thank you very much uh, for that excellent introduction, and thank you for reading it the way I wrote it. That's, that's <laughs> Always works. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everybody. It's, it's a real pleasure to, to do a talk for you on uh, my new book, uh, this biography of Francis Scott Key. It's the first bio of Key in over 75 years. And um, I uh, have uh, had a couple of cups of coffee, so I'm all keyed up and ready to oh, wait, No, sorry. I'll be the last one of those. So. Uh, <laughs> um, this is an, a fascinating figure, and uh, like we said, everybody knows the name Francis Scott Key, but you know, he was only 35 years old when he wrote that song, and he lived until 1843, and he had this really interesting career, one of the big lawyers in D.C., one of the prime movers and shakers in all of the issues of the early republic. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of background about him and um, 
of course, we'll talk about what happened on that night of September 13th, 14th, 1814, and then we'll go into a little bit about his life afterward because there is a lot. So I, I did have that coffee, and I'm going to have to talk a little fast, so bear with me. Um, he was born in 1779 uh, during the American Revolution. He came from a family of lawyers. He was born in Maryland, a Maryland family. His great-grandfather came over here in 1720, and Philip Key, he was a lawyer from England. He settled in southern Maryland, and he became very prosperous here. He owned a lot of land, including this 3,500-acre parcel that he named Terra Rubra, basically red earth, about a half hour north of Frederick, Maryland. And that's where Frank was born. Oh, by the way, so I want you to know this now. They called him Frank, okay? So when we have question time, we want to just talk about Frank Key, not Francis Scott Key. Um, so... Uh, uh, and so his, his grandfather, Francis Key, was a lawyer, and as was his father, John Ross Key, who uh, had one brother, Philip Barton Key I, and that was Frank's uncle, and he also was a lawyer. So uh, Frank and his sister were born on Terra Rubra, this plantation, uh, the 3,500-acre plantation north of Frederick, Maryland. And um, he was born during the Revolutionary War. His father, uh, John Ross Key, fought in the revolution. He wound up at Yorktown, serving under Marquis de Lafayette. However, his uncle, his, his only uncle, and the man who had more influence on Frank than his father, Philip Barton Key, took a very different tack. Um, Philip Barton Key was a loyalist during the revolution. And not only was he a loyalist, but he joined the British army to fight against us. Thank you very much. And uh, he, was, he was captured, actually, near the end of the war, taken prisoner, and then went to England. Sometimes I say he went back to England. No, he never even lived in England. He went to England, read the law, got a really strong practice going, and then he decided, for whatever reason, he was coming back here. So I think you probably know that loyalists, when they returned to the fold, they, the reception went from being embraced to being tarred and feathered. Well, uh, Philip Barton was embraced. He moved to Annapolis. He became a prominent lawyer. Big, he became mayor of Annapolis. And he had this big law practice. And then his rehabilitation was complete, or maybe not, when he got elected to the US Congress. <laughs> so uh, he renounced England. And he was actually had a pension from the English army, which he eventually turned down. So the reason I talk about Philip Barton is because that he had a big influence on Frank's life. Frank was educated at home. And then when he was 10 years old, the family sent him to a new school that had just opened in Annapolis, Maryland, called St. John's College, which I think you probably know about. It's still there. It was a primary school then. And then it went up all the way through college years. And uh, Frank uh, went to primary school there. He actually lived, he boarded with uh, his uncle Upton Scott, that's the Scott part of the family. He was a physician. And the Scott, Upton Scott house is really a beautiful big house in, um, in Annapolis. It's still there, it's privately owned, not far from the campus. And then he was uh, graduated in 1796 from St. John's College. And the, the main building at St. John's College where Frank studied is still there. His name is carved in his initials. No, no, it isn't, sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can walk into that classroom where Frank studied. And um, so after, he read law. He read law in Annapolis uh, for a couple of years. And then he met the woman who would become his wife, and that was Polly Lloyd. Now, Polly Lloyd was from 
The Lloyd family of Maryland, her father, Colonel Edward Lloyd, may have been the richest man in the state of Maryland. He had a huge plantation. Uh, you might know about it. It was called Y Plantation, W-Y-E. You know where that is if you go over? Yeah, on the, on the uh, eastern shore of Maryland. It's still there. And he had a schooner. He had his own schooner that went back and forth to Baltimore, uh, and, and, and he had a big plantation there. So he, Colonel Lloyd had died, and Polly and her sister and mother were living in their townhouse in Annapolis. You know, when I was doing the research, and you know, you read about a townhouse in Annapolis, what do you picture? You know, a townhouse, right? Well, if you go to the Chase Lloyd House in Annapolis, which is a house museum today, it takes up three-fourths of an entire block right on College Avenue, right near the college, right near the Maryland State Capitol. So Polly was a beautiful woman and a very eligible woman, and tongues wagged in Annapolis society when Frank, the hick lawyer from Frederick, you know, uh, announced that he, they were going to get married. But they did get married, and then he moved her to Frederick, where he practiced law. Uh, they moved there in 1802. And, um, you know, Fred, they had two children. And then Frederick got a little too small, and they wanted to go bigger. So where did they go? They went to Washington, D.C., the new capital uh, of the United States. And they bought, they didn't buy, sorry, they tried to buy, but they wound up renting a house on Bridge Street in Georgetown. Bridge Street is now M Street. You all know M Street in Georgetown, the main uh, east-west street. And you know, if you do know Georgetown, I, I think you will know where uh, Frank's house was, okay? If you go over the Key Bridge, right, named, what's the official name? The Frank Key Bridge, right? <laughs> no, it isn't, sorry. If you go over Francis Scott Key Bridge, and then you hit M Street, and you make a right on M Street, you'll see a little postage stamp-sized park. That's Francis Scott Key Park. That is not where the house was, actually. <laughs> it actually was, if you go over Key Bridge and make a left towards Georgetown University, um, that's where the house was. Right now, it's an entrance ramp onto the Whitehurst Freeway. The, ha the house went out of the family. It went to disrepair. People tried to save it, and it was one of the earliest house preservation movements in the 20th century. The National Park Service wound up owning it, and then they gave up And when the Whitehurst Freeway came in, and they took it down brick by brick and board by board, and they put it all on the other side of the bridge where that park is with the idea that they would reconstruct it. It never happened. There's not a brick or board left. So to give you a better idea of where that house was, and I think this is a, you know, a landmark that most of you will know, it's across M Street from Dixie Liquors. <laughs> Aha! That's right. Okay. So, and the exorcist steps, right, where they filmed the exorcist? So, okay. So now you know where Frank and Polly lived. Um, he became a big lawyer in town, and he was famous. Uh, well, he took over, remember we was, I was talking about Philip Barton Key, his uncle. He took over Uncle Philip Barton Key's practice. By the way, Philip Barton Key moved to Washington himself. He bought a big parcel of land that is now called Woodley Park in Washington, D.C. You probably know where that is. It's sort of the, near the Naval Observatory. It's the vice president's house. That toward, between all of that and um, American University area up there. And in fact, the house that he built called Woodley still stands. It's a beautiful house, and it's the, now the library on the campus of the Murray School uh, on Cathedral Avenue in Washington. So he took over Philip Barton's practice, Philip Barton Key's practice, 
He was, he was known for his oratory, oratorical skills and his persuasiveness uh, uh, in front of juries. He was a great speaker. Okay, so let's go up to the War of 1812. Ironically, for a man who's known to us as some, for something that happened during that war, Frank was adamantly against the U.S. going into war against the British when the war clouds were storming up. We tend to forget that a lot of our wars were controversial, and this one was the country was bitterly divided against, uh, for and against. And in general, Southerners were for it, Northerners were against it. Frank, by the way, you have to know, was Southern in outlook. He grew up on this plantation, slave-owning family, uh, that kind of values, and yet he was one of the few Southerners, along with his friend, the iconoclastic Virginia congressman and later Senator John Randolph of Roanoke. They were both against it. Frank called it a lump of wickedness. Now, he did change his mind, as did Randolph, um, when, the, when the complexion of the war changed. After the British defeated Napoleon, they sent over some crack troops over here and they got things going up the Chesapeake Bay. And remember, their ships were going up the Chesapeake and they were raiding places and burning places and taking prisoners and so on. So Frank actually put on a uniform. He joined a Georgetown artillery militia unit uh, and he went out to the Chesapeake Bay and he served for about a week. He said he didn't like it and he quit the army. I wished I could have quit the army in 1967, <laughs> but uh, Frank quit. He went back home to Georgetown, and um, fast forward now to the Battle of Bladensburg. You know, one of the most embarrassing military defeats in U.S. history. The British came up and they invaded Washington, August 26, 1814. The army that we put up was just pathetic, with the exception of one or two units. It was militiamen; they weren't prepared. And in an hour, those British troops went right through our lines. I mean, in terms of casualties, there weren't that many casualties because it didn't last that long. Uh, however, you know what happened next. The British burned Washington. They burned the White House. They burned the Library of Congress, the Treasury Department. Now, they did not burn any private residences. The, the, the citizens of Washington were terrified that they were going to burn the whole place down. Most of the people fled. Frank sent Polly and the kids up to Maryland by the way, he eventually they had 11 children. Um, and um, Frank stayed, as did a lot of other men, and see if there's anything they could do. He actually showed up on the field of battle at Bladensburg because he knew the terrain. Some, you may read sometimes that he fought, in the, he didn't fight in the Battle of Bladensburg. But he did show up uh, to give some advice. Nothing worked, of course. And um, you know, in shame and humiliation, he went back to Georgetown, which may have had something to do with why he volunteered for a mission he was asked to go on. So after the Battle of Bladensburg, um, there was a doctor named, William, a medical doctor named William Beans. He lived, he was one of the most prominent citizens of the nation's capital area. He lived in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. He had a farm out there. And when the British were leaving after Bladensburg, he found a couple of straggler troops and took them prisoner in his barn. Bad move, Dr. Beans. When the British found out they were furious, and they took him prisoner. He was in his 60s. And they took him to their ship, and they sailed off up towards Baltimore. Well, prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges were common during the War of 1812. And it, the, the Beans family wanted to get somebody who could, was 
was a good convincer of people. And so they, they asked Frank, who knew? The, you know, the prominent families kind of all knew each other. So Frank knew Dr. Beams. He was asked to do it. He said yes. He got permission from President Madison. And on September 2nd, he got on his horse and he rode up from uh, Georgetown to Baltimore. When he got there a couple days later, uh, he met up with a man named uh, John Skinner, who Skinner was a colonel in the army whose job it was to arrange prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges. So they got on an American sloop. They found the British fleet. They were welcomed on board, and they sat down and had lunch and drank some wine, and Frank convinced them to release Dr. Beams. One of the, one of the reasons he did was that he left Washington with a packet of letters from British prisoners. Uh, they were asked to describe their treatment by the Americans, and all of them said, we are there, they're taking care of us well, they're treating our wounds, they're feeding us. And that, that, that seems to have convinced the British. However, they said, you know, we're not going to let Skinner, Key, and Beans go until after we have destroyed the city of Baltimore. You guys hang tight. I don't think that's a direct quote. <laughs> so, so, so um, why, were the, why did the British want to destroy Baltimore? Remember we talked earlier about how the country was so divided against the ones who really wanted to go to war and people didn't. The people of Baltimore were itching to go to war. It was a hotbed of anti-British feeling. And remember, we did not have much of a navy when the war started. So the call went out to private ship owners to volunteer for the cause and to sink Brit and raid British ships all over the place. Well, they were, these were called privateers. Guess what city led the nation in privateer ships? The Baltimore, Baltimore did. They called them the Baltimore Clippers. They were fast ships, and they, they drove the British crazy. The British press called Baltimore a nest of thieves. So in, co in contrast to Washington, where the British purposely did not burn any public buildings, uh, only burned public buildings, they were out to get the people of Baltimore. And they had an armada of ships. They had 19 ships, um, four bomb ships alone. These were squat ships that just had, I think it was three or four giant cannons that spit out 250-pound cannonballs. And they were ready to bomb Baltimore back to the Stone Age. So they put Frank and Beans and Skinner on uh, a British ship, and then they put him back on that American ship they came in under guard. Sometimes you hear that Key was held prisoner during the Battle of Baltimore, well, sort of. It wasn't like bread and water underneath, you know, underneath decks. They were on the deck, and they had an, he had a ringside seat on the Battle of Baltimore. Now, this was, it went for 30 straight, no, no, sorry, 25 straight hours. It was the longest sustained bombardment in military history to that point. 1,500 bombs, mortars, and rockets. This was only the second time in the history of warfare that rockets were used. They had just been developed. They were called Congreve rockets, and they were like we think rockets. They were tall and thin with fins on the side. The good news for our team was they had no guidance system. <laughs> so they just flung them out there, and the rockets read, well, something like that. And uh, there were bombs burst. Uh, never mind. So um, uh, there, there was also a thunderstorm that night. I mean, it, it, can you imagine this fuselage of bombs and rockets and a thunderstorm that was so severe that some have called it a hurricane, some have called it uh, a tornado, and some recently called it a derecho, which I think is a little bit of filling in of history. But nevertheless, can you imagine the sight? 
Francis Scott Key was an amateur poet. He loved scribbling poetry his whole life. Um, and he, he never meant for it to go beyond family and friends. It was just verses that he did for, for, uh, pr for private purposes. I, I'm sorry to have to tell you, he was a bad amateur poet. <laughs> just, he didn't mean for those poems to be read by the public, but after he died, somebody put him out in a book. You can read it, go to Google Books, search Francis Scott Key, bad poetry. No, just, just, <laughs> just Francis Scott Key. Just don't take my word for it, which sort of makes those words that he wrote even more amazing. But he just wasn't a good poet. Nevertheless, um, so the rockets, the, the rockets, red glare, the thunder. Three o'clock in the morning, everything, the guns go silent. But it's pitch dark. They don't know, the men on the key, Skinner and Bean, don't know what happened. My contention is, if they had Twitter back then, there'd be no Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> 140 characters, Frank, we won, go home, right? But they didn't know. It was pitch dark, all they knew was that it was over. So they're pacing the deck, they don't know what happened. Finally, what happens? Comes the dawn's early light. <laughs> Frank's peering through his glass and he sees a flag, but he can't tell what flag it is because it's limp, a breeze comes, he sees the flag, and our flag is still there. He realizes that we won the battle. And by the way, I don't know if he realized it, but the Battle of Baltimore was the turning point of the War of 1812. After that, you know, talks had been, go peace talks had been going on, but um, the British really lost the will to fight more or less after that, and the, they reinstituted the peace talks, and we had the Treaty of Ghent, which was signed, um, in January, I guess it was January of 1815. Now, of course, the Battle of New Orleans took place after the signing of the Treaty of Ghent, which Jackson supposedly, Andrew Jackson, who made his name there, supposedly didn't know, but I have a feeling that if he did know, he wouldn't have cared anyway, so. <laughs> but anyway, but really, the war was, in, in essence, that was a turning point in the war. But all Frank knew was that Baltimore had been saved. He had a, um, letter in his pocket. Sometimes you read it that he wrote it on the back of an envelope. Well, they didn't have envelopes in 1814, remember? It was a letter. The letters were envelopes, you know this. So um, uh, he started scribbling some verses. The Brits let him go. They went, um, he went back to a hotel in Baltimore and he finished the verses. Now, what happens next is a little bit mysterious because interestingly enough, Francis Scott Key only spoke about what happened in public that night once for the rest of his life. And as far as letters are concerned, he only wrote about it once in an October 4th letter to his friend John Randolph of Roanoke, uh, at, at least in any letters that have surfaced. And believe me, I looked and many, many others have looked and it's the only one we found. And in this letter of October 4th, he does not mention writing the poem or the song. Uh, all he talks about was getting Dr. Beans released and how much he didn't like the British officers. So. Um, uh, so, w the account of what happened next is what we primarily know is based on something that was written in a book in the 1850s. And you, know, you and I know, everybody who studies history knows that anytime you're reading something that's 40 years after the fact, you have to take it with a grain of salt. There are some things we can corroborate with newspaper articles and letters and so on. But here, so piecing it together, oh, by the way, who wrote it? So 
It was written by Frank's brother-in-law. Who was Frank's brother-in-law? Roger Brook Tawney. Roger Brook Tawney, they were young lawyers together in Annapolis. He married Frank's only sister. They had a whole bunch of children, and the families were very, very close for the rest of Frank's life. He died before Tawney did. And you know, Tawney became Chief Justice of the United States. And so Tawney put this out, and here's what, here's what we think happened. So, Frank comes back, somebody, not, we don't know who, but somebody, probably another one of his brothers-in-law, took what he wrote uh, to a printer, because we do know from newspaper accounts that the next day, that those words were written on broadsheets and they were plastered all over the city of Baltimore. And the words were, um, did not have, uh, it wasn't called the Star Spangled Banner, it was called Defense of Fort McHenry. And it also said, to be sung to the tune of to Anacreon in heaven. To Anacreon in heaven. Okay, what's that? Well, that was the theme song of the Anacreontic Society, which was uh, started in Britain, but we had some over here. And the Anacreontic Society was a group of gentlemen who would meet periodically to discuss great events of the day and literature, and they sang songs. And they did meet in taverns, and there was a little bit of drinking going on. So sometimes you, you hear, or often you hear, that that song is written to the tune of a British drinking song, right? My contention is it's not like 99 bottles of beer in the world, you know? <laughs> it's a little bit more high-minded than that. So, and the other thing you have to remember is back in the early 19th century, it was common. It was not uncommon. It was common for people to put words of, onto existing melodies. And guess what? That melody, to an Acreon in heaven, the one you know, uh, was one of the most popular melodies that people morphed, song, morphed words onto, 50, 75 songs. So uh, it wasn't uncommon to have done, and Frank's uh, words fit that. So um, the song gets distributed, and then about two months later, it appears on sheet music for the first time, and its title is changed to the Star Spangled Banner. And it never had Frank's name on it, but it became known that Francis Scott Key, the lawyer from Washington, wrote that song. So that's, that's what we believe, and it, 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 we're pretty certain that that's the chronology of it. So like I said, Frank was only 35 years old when he wrote the song. He came back to Washington, and uh, he went on to have this really big legal career. He, he argued over 100 cases before the US Supreme Court. Now, Frank was, uh, two more things you should know about Frank. He was an extremely religious man. Episcopalian. He almost went into the Episcopal priesthood, and there's a letter from the Bishop of Maryland uh, asking him why he didn't, and he said, you know, I'd like to, but I have this family to feed. Eventually had 11 children, and I can't, I can't do it. So he was a very hardworking lawyer, and um, as far as, but he did stay very, very active in the Episcopal Church. He was a founding member of the Virginia Theological Seminary, which still exists up in Alexandria, um, he was also very big in the equivalent Maryland, I can't remember the exact name, but it was the Maryland Theological Seminary. He was very active in his local church, St. John's Church in Georgetown. It's still there. There's a plaque out in front that mentions him and some of the other early parishioners. He was a lay minister. He taught Sunday school. He ministered to the sick. Um, so it's one thing you should, and all of his letters are suffused with religious quotes from the Bible and uh, letters to, to his children, mostly saying how they should, you know, pay attention to what the Bible says and so on. So that's one thing you should know about him. Um, and the other thing is he disdained politics for most of his life. 
He was a te- if anything, he was a tepid Whig. And you know why he didn't like politics? Because he said it was too bitterly divisive. Can't understand. <laughs> Cannot understand how he did that. But uh, <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. He just didn't like the partisanship. So, but Frank changed his mind when Andrew Jackson got elected president. Uh, not, not quite sure why, but one reason was Tawny, uh, his brother-in-law, was Maryland was uh, uh, Jackson's Maryland campaign manager. He campaigned for Tawny uh, for for Jackson, and he just fell in love with Andy Jackson. He did legal work for Jackson. I don't have time to get into it. And then uh, in 1833, Jackson appointed him U.S. Attorney for Washington, and he held that office for eight years. He was the prosecuting attorney in Washington D.C. It was a very small operation. I think he had one person that worked for him in addition to the constables uh, underneath him. And you know what? He didn't give up his private legal practice. <laughs> so, you know, one day he'd be in court prosecuting somebody, the next day he'd be defending somebody. Um, I guess the laws were a little different back then. But he did some pretty high-profile cases, and um, don't have time to get into them, but um, they're all in the book. And um, the other thing <laughs> that, uh, that you should know about Key uh, is his work with the uh, American Colonization Society because it was a really, really important thing in his life. Uh, the American Colonization Society was founded in Washington, D.C. in 1816. Frank was one of the founders. And I think you know what colonization was. The idea was it was supposedly to uh, counteract, maybe even end slavery. And the idea was to send free blacks, not slaves. I mean, the, in their constitution, they underlined it, exclamation point, not slaves, only free blacks to a new colony on the west coast of Africa. And that colony did come into being. It was, and later became the nation of Liberia. And Frank was on the board of managers of the American Colonization Society uh, from the very beginning. He, was a mo- he, he proselytized, he gave speeches, he wrote newspaper articles, he went around and tried to convince people to join. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a controversial endeavor. At first, abolitionists thought this might be a good idea, send blacks to a new colony. But soon, abolitionists loathed the idea of colonization. And Frank and abolitionists did not get along very well. And so uh, this just... And the other thing about Key was that uh, he had a reputation and a deserved reputation for representing free blacks and slaves in the courts of Washington, D.C. for free. Um, and so, you know, th- th- as far as issues, and, you know, he, this is from a man who was a, came from a slave-owning family. He owned slaves, not many, but he did. He bought and sold slaves. Uh, for his entire life, yet he had this reputation for, and he was adamantly against, number one, international slave trafficking. Remember, international slave trafficking was illegal, had been illegal in the United States. It was illegal to import slaves since 1807, 1808. Slavery was still legal in the states where it was legalized, but you were not allowed to bring in slaves. And Frank was adamantly against that and against the institution of slavery itself. If you, you know, it's con- someone analogized it to Thomas Jefferson. If, if you cherry pick Jefferson's quotes on the institution of slavery, what did he call it, an abomination against God? You know, uh, it would almost sound like he was uh, an abolitionist. Same with Francis Scott Key. He spoke out strongly against the institution, and yet, you know, there's all those and yets. 
So it's just something you should know about key. And um, the other thing is um, that let's take the story of the Star Spangled Banner all the way up to 1931 because you know we didn't have an official national anthem until 1931 and um, as the 20th century as we got closer to the 20th century the Star Spangled Banner well let me just go back this after he wrote the song the song became known throughout the states and it was uh, a patriotic air that was played at Fourth of July's and other occasions but it was only one of several it was not the official national anthem we didn't have one during the Civil War, it and the Battle Hymn of the Republic kind of vied for being the unofficial national anthem of the, the Union. And as we got closer to the turn of the 20th century, more and more institutions took it up, including the military. But it did not become the official national anthem until 1931. There were hearings on Capitol Hill, and um, the uh, anthem was approved. The, the, the arguments for and against it were ones you sometimes hear today. What was the number one argument against it? It's hard to sing. I mean, God forbid if you start on a high note, right? You are sunk when you get, when the rock is right, you know. So uh, the, that was overcome when they brought in a soprano to sing that song, and she sang it, blew them away, and they voted it in, and President Hoover signed an executive order making the Star Spangled Banner the national anthem of the United States. So that was 1931. So, um, you know, I just kind of went, uh, went over the tip of the tip of the iceberg on this man's life. And I'll just end uh, by saying that um, I told you earlier that Key was a bad poet, right? So consider this. In about 1870s, a reporter from a newspaper in Pennsylvania uh, interviewed one of Key's granddaughters. And he got to talking about the song. And the granddaughter said, oh, you know, granddaddy, it's funny because he was unmusical. Unmusical. Which, and then she told an anecdote, which may or may not be true, but it's fun to say anyway. But supposedly, Key was down in Alabama in 1833 doing some legal work for Jackson. And, you know, when he would go places, by that time, people would, uh, bands would play the song. And supposedly he was sitting there, and the band played the song, and he turned to somebody next to him, and he said, my, that's a pretty air. What is it? <laughs> so I, I think it's apocryphal, but I like telling it anyway. But it was in that newspaper article. So, you know, uh, unmusical, maybe tone deaf. So I'll just leave you with the, the following thought. The national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, which you and I know the words to, which hundreds of millions of others know the words to and know and still get goosebumps when we hear it, was written by a man who was a bad poet and probably tone deaf. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, there you are. Gosh. We do have time for a few questions, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. An admirable, uh, admirable character. Is he a uh, one-hit wonder, or did he ever write anything else? And then secondly, how did the – tell us again how the words got meshed with the song. Okay. Yes. He, he was a one-hit wonder. In fact, he didn't even really write the song, if you think about it. 
on the other hand, he did uh, write several hymns. He was such a religious guy, and they're in the Episcopal uh, hymn book to today. So except for those two hymns, he never wrote another song, and he probably didn't write the Star Spangled, the song itself. There, there was a debate among historians. What was Frank doing that night? The bad poet, was he writing a poem, or was he writing a song? And you know, up until maybe, when I was doing the research for this book, actually, which was 2012, uh, going into 2013, uh, it was basically, the, the basic thought was that he, he was unmusical and he was writing a poem. But there, there are people who study early 19th century music, and they had made a very convincing case that he, he wrote, he was thinking about writing a song that night. One thing is, the, the words, uh, the rhythm, meter, and rhyme fit exactly into To Anacreon in Heaven. Number two, that song, that tune was so popular, he, tone deaf or not, he had to have heard it. And number three, there's historical evidence. Going back a few years earlier, 1807 or something, 1808, uh, you remember Stephen Decatur, who was the hero of the Tripolitan War. Okay, there was a banquet given for Decatur in, in Georgetown, in Washington, and a song was written for the occasion. The song's words were printed in a newspaper article, and it was sung to the tune of To Anacreon in Heaven, and has the words star-spangled flag in it. And it was written by Key. So putting all that together, we, we, the, the, we, the common wisdom now is that Frank was writing a song, tone deaf or not, that night. Does that answer that question? Thank you. How did he die? Oh, he died. Uh, he was visiting his daughter in Baltimore. His, his oldest daughter, Elizabeth. By the way, Frank... Had 11, Frank and Polly had 11 children. Elizabeth had 11 children. One of his other daughters had nine, so there's a million descendants out there. <laughs> uh, he was visiting, uh, it was 1843. He went up to Baltimore to visit her, and he had pneumonia or pleurisy, and he died there. They buried him in the, in the, um, in the Howard, the Howard family you might know, Baltimore, really big, prominent family. Uh, they buried him in the Howard family plot but then uh, they decided that they should, uh, what's that term? Reinter, disinter, uninter? Disinter. They disinterred him and reinterred him. <laughs> that sounds terrible. In um, Frederick, Frederick, Maryland, Mount Olivet Cemetery. But they put him in a corner. And then the, then the city father said, what are we doing here? So if you go up to Frederick, Maryland and go to Mount Olivet Cemetery, there's a huge monument to Key right as you, as you go in there with a time capsule in there, too. Oh. Who tells about the Minnesota connection? The Minnesota connection to Francis Scott Key? Yeah. Uh, Scott was... Uh, oh, 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 yeah, sure. I would be happy to. So... You know, his descendants include some people you may have heard of. One was his son, Philip Barton Key II. He really wasn't, but he was also Philip Barton Key. He became a U.S. attorney in Washington like his father. And in 1853, he was involved in one of the first sex scandals in Washington, D.C. He was having an affair with a beautiful young wife of a congressman or senator, congressman, 
uh, open affair, and his name was Sickles, and Sickles found out about it and shot Philip Barton dead on Lafayette Square in Washington. And the other thing is, in the history books, it went, he, he got off on temporary insanity, Sickles. The first time, that was the first temporary insanity verdict in American history. He later be, went on to become a Civil War general. And his great, great, great second removed grandnephew was a guy named Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> was a descendant of Francis Scott Key. Yes? Thank you for asking. I, I, I always like to tell that when I forgot. Okay. Thank you for an excellent presentation. It's nice to know that his name also changed from Francis to Frank like mine. You mentioned... And Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned in the presentation, kind of glossed by, a, a friendship with the Randolph, John Randolph of Virginia. Could you mind ex expanding upon how that friendship came about and what it was based upon? Yeah, that's a very good question, too. They were very good close friends, and when you look, it's hard to imagine two people who were more different than Key and Randolph. Key, you know, was the ultimate family man. He had 11 kids. Randolph never had children. Key was about as establishment, conservative, in every way, not just politically, but right down the middle. Um, you know, if he drank, he'd have some sherry, you know. Uh, he was super religious. So just, it's like, Take 180 on all of that, right? Randolph, we know, was just a wild man. Uh, I believe he drank a little bit and took opium or whatever. Yeah. Um, but somehow, they became very close friends. There's a lot of letters between the two of them. It might have had something to do with um, Randolph. When he was in Washington, he stayed in Georgetown. And I th they, they were very close in different circles that they would always wind up being. He, I think he even stayed at Frank's house sometime. And the letters are very, very intimate. And they both uh, were against the war. That was one of the things. I mean, they were good friends by that time, before it started. And actually, Rand remember I said that Key put on a uniform? Randolph did, too, when Frank did. His military career was also very short. <laughs> he showed up at some training camp here in Richmond uh, and lasted about you know, two or three weeks. Um, but he was a brilliant man. His speeches are legendary. Um, and he was eccentric. I mean, he would come out onto the floor of Congress with knee-high boots and a riding crop and his hunting dogs. That's not Francis Scott Key. Frank would never do that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's um, and the religion thing. There's these letters where Frank is so religious, and he says, oh, if you only could bring God into your life, everything is going to be fine. And Randolph is either saying, I'll do it, I'll do it, I promise, or go away, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And they also violently disagreed on colonization. Um, at first, Randolph actually was, a found, was, a, was an early member of the Colonization Society, but he turned against, you know how he was, he was so mercurial. He turned against it, and really there's some kind of not very kind letters back and forth. Although, uh, Randolph named Frank as one of the executors of his estate. But there was such a kerfuffle. Can you imagine what Randolph's will was like? There were so many lawsuits that Frank died by the time that the, the will was actually came out of probate. And Frank was sober. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you happen to know whether any of, among any of these hundred or so cases that Frank argued before the Supreme Court 
were argued when his brother-in-law was on the court? Uh, I can't think offhand, but um, Tawney was also Attorney General of the United States and Treasury Secretary. So all of that coincided, and I, I just, I don't want to say one way or the other, but um, somebody Google Roger B. Tawney and find out what years he was on the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, it was also Jackson, that was a very difficult uh, political situation with Tawney and Jackson because Congress uh, basically turned, uh, actually, let me get this straight. When Jackson um, uh, nominated him for Treasury Secretary, it was the first time in American history that the Senate did not confirm a presidential appointee. And, but, you know, Jackson, not to be deterred, he got him back, and then they didn't want to appoint him to the Supreme Court, and he did like an interim appointment, and it worked. So, uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm not quite certain on the chronology. Uh, so I will tell you, Frank was U.S. Attorney from 33 to 41. You know, uh, Jackson left, and um, then... Um, uh, William Henry Harrison, and then he died, and then Tyler, and uh, Tyler did not reappoint him. Yes, ma'am. According to the internet, I read that <laughs> Francis Scott Key manumitted seven slaves, and one he kept and paid him wages to do chores and errands for him. When in his lifetime did he do this? Yeah, that's true. He did manumit. Uh, I'm not sure it was seven, but it was five, six, or something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the first time he did it was um, after Nat Turner's rebellion, when a lot of slave owners were deathly afraid of, you know, that would happen there. So, um, and then there was another case where he bought two little boys with the object of freeing them. And it's not quite clear what happened after that. And that one man that he did free who came to work for him, uh, that's true. They went up to um, York, Pennsylvania to do it. And it's great because the Adams County Historical Society has all the documents. So you can read it and words. I talk about it in the book. Johnson, his name was. Clem Johnson or something like that. Yeah. You know, at the same time he manumitted, he also bought other slaves. His mother had slaves. Um, yeah, and you know, you don't, I'm not judging him through 21st century eyes. You know, I'm, I'm reporting the facts, and that's the way it was. So. But, you know, as far as saying when, it is important when, because a, uh, there was, a, there was a, a, not a movement, but a lot of slave owners were deathly afraid that something like that would happen. And the other thing is, you know, those slaves, he had some in Washington, D.C., um, but they were mostly up at Terra Rubra. Now, Terra Rubra is, you know, north of Frederick. It's not very far from the Pennsylvania line. And they didn't run, uh, you know, like you know, Mississippi overseers with whips. It wasn't that was going on up there. So an argument has been made that any of those enslaved people could have walked Pennsylvania overnight if they wanted to, and nobody did. So just the fact. <laughs> 